The reading this morning is um, from the New Testament. Um, I had many choices of uh, books in the New Testament uh, for this story, and I, because it's in at least three of the Gospels, but I finally chose the one in Matthew, chapter 15. Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. And the disciples said unto him, uh, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness uh, as to fill so great a multitude? There were thousands there, thousands. And Jesus said unto them, How many loaves have you? And they said, Seven, and a few little fishes. And the the rendition of the story in John says that these items were provided by a small lad. And he commanded the multitude to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes, gave thanks, and broke them, and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat, and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left, seven baskets full. And they that did eat were 4,000, 4,000 men, plus the women and the children. from another source. Uh, In her book, Simple Abundance, Sarah Van Brethnock writes, Over 2,000 years ago, there was only enough sacred oil for one night. Reminding us of our first song this morning. But all these faithful, courageous, and grateful people had was all that they needed. Sacred oil in a temple loves and fishes on a mountainside. Miracles are of spirit. Miracles are for anyone who believes. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning, an honor. Um, As many of you know, I'm extremely grateful to be here. About 100 years ago or so, I read a short story about a young boy who wanted to be a pole vaulter. He read books, watched films, practiced, talked to others about their methods and techniques, then sorted out the disagreements among his advisors regarding the best technique, what not to do, what to do, but try as he might, putting the pole this way or that, thinking carefully about his body position, grasping the pole in various places, trying different speeds in the run-up to the plant. Still, he could not achieve even a reasonable leap over a respectable bar height. Thinking about that reminded me a lot of my attempts as a young girl to do cartwheels, which I just could never bring myself to fling my body over with the abandon that it took. Maybe you did. But I I remember thinking with a great 
deal of awe about Lee Fernandez and how she said she used to do cartwheels down the aisle in church. And every time I'm here, I, I think about uh, I think about that with a great deal of joy. But anxiety and doubt would overcome me as it did uh, the pole vaulter, because anxiety and doubt will overcome any amount of technical knowledge if it's allowed to be our focus. But finally, a coach said to this, to this young boy, he said, son, throw your heart over first, and your body will follow. And so he did. And so he did. Now, this same theme features prominently in the movie The Million Dollar Arm. Margaret and I saw one day. Maybe you saw it as well. But there's a special scene there where just the same type of advice and inspiration was given. Possibly you can think of times in your own life when what seemed to be an impossible task was accomplished in spite of great odds because not only did you put in the time and the effort and the knowledge, in addition, you and those you were with gave your hearts and souls unconditionally. And then, like baking bread with yeast, a lifeless bunch of stuff became transformed into something expansive, nutritious, and sustaining. Faith, hope, and love are the elements of the yeast of miracles. Almost exactly a year ago, I was given a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, to live. Still, two of the doctors urged me to get treatment to ease my way, if nothing more. No, I said, I'm actually, I'm grateful I'm not going to die in a fiery plane crash like I always imagined I would. <clears throat> or worse, waste away with Alzheimer's until my son's memories of me are so weak and their lives so consumed that I have stolen their futures by other great fear. The prospect of waiting rooms, painful procedures, side effects, insurance, claims, financial disaster. I mean, why bother? But before thought could become action, my family arrived, and you arrived. Surrounding me with such love, such energy, such care, I knew I was being held aloft by angels in flight who would not let me fall. Sometimes we're at a crossroads where there's just enough strength in a body to respond to the soul's will to live. This isn't always true, sadly, of course. We would like for it to always be true. But sometimes there's that glimmer, and it, it, it all depends upon the soul's response. And so here I am, standing in gratitude and awe. I believe our country is at such a crossroads now. The nation's soul needs touching so it can remember. It can remember the way Pete Seeger could speak, what it's capable of. A recent letter in Leesburg today said that even though Loudoun is shown by most polls to be the number one county in the nation in quality of life and median income, still 
5% of our residents live with food insecurity. 5%. There are at this moment 17,000 people right here in Loudoun who don't know where their next meal is coming from. In the nation at large, there are over 45 million living in poverty. Many of these people are working. Many have children at home. This is an economic crisis. And there's plenty of reason to go on and on with the ins and outs of the free market and personal responsibility and opportunities missed and the value of a good education and what about the small businesses and for God's sake, what would a living wage do to our 401ks? Just think of it. Arguing and debating and spreading anxiety and trying to speak truth to power are not working. And God knows I've tried. And Phyllis knows it too. <laughs> and she's going to be surprised at some of the words I say. <laughs> but the bottom line is, what kind of people are we? Do we really want to wait for a rally and cry to pitchforks and torches? If I hadn't got sick, that's where I was. <laughs> Pearl Buck's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Good Earth, graphically illuminates the historical theme when the rich get too rich and the poor get too poor. Something is going to happen. What kind of people are we? Are we content and comfortable with realizing that our quality of life is being at least partially provided by people here at home and millions abroad who are working long hours and still are unable to provide basic services and dignity for themselves and their families? I think we're better than that. And so does the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. And so they ask the questions. What is stirred in your heart when you hear that there are people working full-time and still live in poverty? Where do you meet and receive services from this group of people? How does it feel to interact with people who work hard yet continue to live in poverty? And how does this issue speak to the religious values we seek to live by? Principles such as the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. And even the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. I personally know a woman who worked six days a week as a companion care aide, often walking long distances in the hot summer sun on weekends to reach her clients' homes. She herself is in her 50s. And although she'd worked hard all her adult life, she couldn't afford a car, and there's no public transportation on weekends. Her front teeth are missing. She now has trouble with her feet and walks with a cane. Her weekend client was a woman who had lost both of her legs 
because of standing for years behind a cash register at Safeway, where cashiers are not allowed to sit. And the circulation finally just did not sustain her limbs. I pondered the condition of the aid and how hard she works and the precarious unimaginable nature of her future just as I was offered a contract to provide accounting services to an IT firm in Reston. For no particular reason other than that they can, I was given a spacious office, free coffee, gourmet meals at Reston Town Center, and rides in a new BMW. Not mine, but, you know, rides. Should I sign on as a permanent employee, there's a full page listing of wonderful benefits available to me. Now, really, do we as a religious community really believe that being a bean counter to someone who is already fabulously rich is that much more valuable to our national soul than having a woman with no legs cared for by a competent companion? What kind of people are we? The people who work hard and live in poverty are not only companion care aides, they're restaurant workers, child care providers, nursing aides. They clean our offices, and sometimes our homes, and sometimes our bedpans. The town of Leesburg contracts for some of its custodial services. When I asked what the wage scale for these contracts are, the reply from the budgeting officer was that the contract requires that the minimum wage be applied. But they refused to tell me if, in fact, the town's offices in the richest county in the nation are being cleaned by workers who make only $7.25 per hour. The inference was that with contractors, you don't have to provide the details. The Freedom of Information Act does not apparently apply. It's impossible to live in Leesburg on $7.25 an hour. We all know that. Are these employees part of the 17,000 who have to beg for food? If so, will we deny their inherent worth and dignity? Will we let the silence remain? How ironic is it that many of the working poor will be working tomorrow on Labor Day in food service and retail? Their children will be alone? Even garbage disposal is being collected for us tomorrow. It's a pretty far cry from the original intent of Labor Day. Most of us here are all set to enjoy the day. We can choose fabulous retail sales, delicious food, and even empty trash cans to collect our refuse at the end of barbecues and picnics. What kind of people are we? All of this is why I am personally so relieved to read and review the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee's commitment to wage justice. Some of the issues they focus on, and it's all on their website, easy to access, 
the right to a living wage, strengthening workers' rights to organize, fair trade, which we're already involved in here and have been for a long time, and better working conditions for poultry workers. Their website gives tools for choosing compassionate consumption, signing petitions, holding covenant group gatherings in congregations to apply the power of our own hearts and souls to these pressing moral questions. I personally resonated with uh, Reverend Peter Morales' editorial in the fall edition of UU World, recently out. I'm going to pull a couple of excerpts from it for us to um, ponder. He writes, I am convinced that our work aimed at changing unjust laws is part of a larger and even more important challenge, leading a change in the hearts and minds of our culture. Yes, we must speak truth to power, but more importantly, we must persuade the frightened. Consider our advocacy for marriage equality. The laws changed, and what stunning success the last few years have brought, which came when attitudes changed. Similarly, our efforts in the civil rights movement and anti-slavery were most effective when they focused on moral appeals and changing people's hearts. Religion, I have long believed, is much more about what we love than about what we think. So how would we begin? We would begin by opening our hearts to the real people who are being marginalized and used, to get to know them, to hear their stories personally, to share our hearts and dreams in common. There's much creative work to be done. Charities are wonderful things. And we are a generous people here in UUCL and in Loudoun generally. But there's no dignity in requiring working adults to beg for help. Charity, and, and there's plenty of need for it, for people who can't work for whatever reason. Think for a minute how it would feel to go home to your family at the end of a long day and have your sons and daughters look at you, especially when they become the age of teenagers, and know you cannot feed them. That your hard work is not valued by your community. I cannot imagine anything more damaging to my sense of self. So it's encouraging to read on the UUSC website uh, a petition written by Reverend Bill Schultz, who's president of the committee, and Reverend Peter Morales, who is president of the UUA. It's titled, A Minimum Wage Statement, A Moral Perspective, A Moral Imperative, A Moral Imperative. I won't take the time to read it all, and it's there for your easy access, but I'm going to pull a few sentences out of it. They write, 
We've been told we're in the middle of an economic recovery, but the truth is that while the stock market is closing at unprecedented highs, <clears throat> workers who make minimum wage are not recovering. They're barely putting food on the table. Millions of low-wage workers in our country work hard day in and day out and still can't afford life's basic necessities. They are the restaurant servers feeding us, the people caring for our elderly or sick ones, and the workers keeping our buildings clean. They are our brothers, mothers, friends, sometimes congregants and community members. They are suffering silently, choosing between buying food, getting to work, and paying the rent. It is time to ask that everyone share in corporate success. We believe in models in which employers treat their workers as human beings rather than just another cost of doing business. This is more than a political issue. It is a moral imperative. And legislation is just the starting point. We must act as our faith dictates. We must be true to the values that we hold dear. We stand in solidarity with people throughout the country struggling to survive on minimum wage. We call upon all people of faith to join us. That's a partial reading. Now the media talk shows and internet and are on fire with anxiety, fear, doubt, and debate, and I know that because I've been one of those people. Um, listening to them frequently only keeps us in constant turmoil. Like the young pole vaulter who, who can't make the leap. So how do we become the change we would like to see in the world? How do we provide the yeast of a miracle? And once again, our leader in Boston, Reverend Peter Morales, gives us the steps. He writes, I believe we already have a model before us. We have only to look at the miraculous. That word is not too strong. Miraculous change in attitudes around sexuality, gender, and marriage equality. Here are the elements, I believe, that have been crucial to our success. We joined hands with other progressive religious groups and became part of a larger movement. We stood for something, not against something. We framed the issues as matters of equality and love. We made it personal. Real people were being marginalized and brutalized and denied basic rights. We were relentless. We did not give up when elections and court cases went against us. Speaking truth to power is important, and speaking truth to power is not sufficient. It never has been. Let us bear witness to love and truth. Let us help people overcome their fears. We have done it before, and we must do it again. This is our great religious challenge. So, 
What kind of people are we? It's hard to see myself clearly, but I can see you. You are angels in flight, divine spirits in human form. You create miracles, and you can do this. Blessed be.